today we're back in our uh, series in John, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. We took a couple weeks off and did some unique things. We're, in the next couple of weeks, the 13th and the 20th, we will take another couple of weeks off for, to celebrate Palm Sunday and Easter. But today at least we're back in John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one to follow along with, raise your hand and we'll put one in your hands. Okay, and if not, we'll, uh, you can follow along on the screen. Um, what we've seen in our study in the last few chapters, just to, just to fill you in, is Jesus has been, he's embarked on his, on his public ministry. He's been traveling through Jerusalem and the greater regions of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And what he's been doing, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been revealing who he is and why he came. And there's, just as a little aside, as I was studying through that this week and uh, kind of refreshing where we were, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before is that thus far what John tells us is that Jesus' public, his public ministry has been primarily to individuals. Um, I just thought that was kind of interesting. It's been primarily to individuals. Remember when his first uh, activity in his public ministry was at the wedding in Cana where he, um, he helped a couple or he helped his mom, however you want to look at it. And then he went out and he had that long conversation one-on-one with Nicodemus. And then from there he had... He ministered to the royal official and his son. And then from there, he ministered to the Samaritan. Remember, he sent the disciples into the town, but he sat out there and he waited for that Samaritan woman to come out and he dealt with her one-on-one. And then after that, remember, he, uh, he dealt with a paralytic at the pool. Again, there was a whole lot of sick people, a whole lot of crippled people there, and he dealt with that one man. Um, and I, I don't know why, but I kind of found that significant this week because what that tells me is God loves the world, but he also loves me. You know, you see, in every one, if you look at, if you begin to study each one of those encounters, he handles even very similar requests from different people in very different ways. You know, he, he comes at it from different angles. He uses a different time frame. He asks different questions. He probes and he prods in these uniquely different ways because we're uniquely different people. What that tells me that God loves me. He, he knows me. He knit me together in my mother's womb. He, he knows my, my thoughts and he knows my dreams. And he knows my hopes and my fears. He knows my past and my present and my future, my unique uh, person and my unique story. God loves me just as he loves the world. And that, that's really significant to me that he knows exactly what I need and exactly what I don't need. And he knows exactly what I need to walk through today to become the man of God that he's created me to be. He knows you. He knows exactly what you need to go through. He knows exactly what you need to walk through yesterday, today, and tomorrow to, to mold and to shape you into the man or woman or child of God that he's created you to be. I don't know why I found that just incredibly encouraging. He knows me. Anyway, that, that really doesn't have much to do with what we're going to talk about today. I just thought it was encouraging. I thought maybe you'd be encouraged too. So now we move on. I move to the next part of our story. Like I said, Jesus has been traveling around all over the area, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and he's been revealing who he is, and now we begin to see the reaction from the people. We begin, we begin to see how people respond to Jesus' claims and his actions. So let's, let's read this together. John chapter 5, verse 18. We're going through 29. It says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will." 
The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can we we pray? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, and this is a very uh, complex statement that Jesus made, and so Lord, we ask for your um, wisdom and uh, just your discernment, Lord, to be able to see the truth that's being stated here, and I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to hear it and apply it to uh, our lives and that we'd be able to um, let the truth of your word actually change us. Um, God, be with us today, and in all things, God, uh, be glorified. You are worthy, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So yes, this, this statement by Jesus is one of the most complex, uh, most profound, deepest statements that he's going to make in all four of the Gospels. It's incredibly uh, rich. Um, and so, and I, say, I feel like I say this every week, but there's a whole lot more than we have time to go through today. So what I've just done is I've picked out three key truths that we're going to study today. Three key truths. And then we'll, and we'll end by talking about a couple of uh, quick takeaways. Truth number one. Truth number one. Jesus is equal with God the Father. Okay? Jesus is equal with God the Father. The Pharisees come in saying that this carpenter from Nazareth, the son of Joseph, okay, this carpenter is calling himself the son of God, therefore making himself equal with God. And does Jesus argue with them? No. He lets it stand. He lets it stand. Actually, what he does uh, is he agrees with them and he begins to expound on that very truth. Now, we might think, reading from our cultural perspective as Americans in the 21st century, we might think, how is Jesus calling himself the Son of God make him equal with God? Because what we think in our world today is we think, well, you know, really, aren't we all children of God? Aren't we all, you know, all, isn't all of his creation the sons and daughters of God? That's, that's what most people will say if you walk out on the street and you ask. We're all the children of God. And in some sense, as we've said, in some general way, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true in, 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 the, in the way that, you know, Henry Ford, we've used this example, Henry Ford, who created the Model T. You could say that he's the father of the Model T because he invented it. He created it. So he's the father of the Model T. But Henry Ford, as you know, has a very different relationship with his car than I do with my kids. Right? We hope. Okay, So in some general way, because God created all of human beings, we could say, yes, he is our father. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And the Jews knew that, and that's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they wanted to stone him. Jesus was not claiming to be a son of God. He said, I am the son of God. And the Jewish leaders knew what he was meaning by that, because in their world, it was the eldest son, the only son, that was the eldest son who would receive all of the father's wealth, all of the father's status, all of the father's position. It was called the law of primogenitor. It was not divided up equally among the kids like it often is in our day. It was the eldest son who was completely and totally equal with the father. And that was it. That was it. It was a unique 
role that the eldest son played. And so what Jesus is saying, I am the unique firstborn. I am the unique son of God. He is claiming absolute equality with God. So the Jews are right. Jesus is saying, I'm equal with the Father. He doesn't argue with them. And in fact, what he's going to do is he's going to expound on it. And all throughout the statement, Jesus is going to ascribe to himself things that only God can claim. Let me give you three of them. First, Jesus says in verse 21, he says that I give life. The Son gives life. But in Deuteronomy 32, actually all throughout the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 32, we find out it's only God who gives life. Deuteronomy 32 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Only the uncreated, almighty God has the power to give life. But in verse 21, Jesus says, The Son gives life to whom he will. Okay? In addition to that, it goes a step further. In addition to that, Jesus says several times here that he has the authority to judge. In fact, what he says is, he says, I alone have the authority to judge. In other words, he's telling these Jews who are, who are he's saying, one day you will stand before me and you'll have to give an account on how you live. Can you imagine a man standing before you saying that? One day at the end of all days, you are going to have to give an account to me. And again, all throughout the Old Testament, We're told that it's only God who judges, it's not man. Jesus is claiming the unique authority and power of God himself. But then it goes one step further. He says, the son will give life to whom he chooses, and the son alone has the authority to judge. But then it goes one step further, and he says, you must worship me as the father. Jesus actually, he doesn't just allow people to worship him. He actually demands to be honored, demands to be worshiped. Verse 23, Jesus says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And Jesus doesn't leave any uh, room for guessing. He actually tells us at what degree we are to honor him. He says, verse 23, all are to honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In other words, the same degree of devotion and affections and allegiance and loyalty that you offer to God the Father, you must offer to me. Again, think about this. You've got a guy standing in front of you who says, you must worship me to the extent that you worship God the Father. So the Jews were, were, were spot on. The Jews accused Jesus of claiming to be equal to the Father, and he de- Jesus doesn't deny it one bit. He says, yep, I give life. I alone have the authority to judge, and you owe me the same faith and devotion that you, uh, that you owe to the Father. You'll hear a lot of people in our world today who, who will claim that Jesus was just some great thinker, just some great moral teacher, just some great moral example, and that, you know, he never really claimed to be God. That's something centuries later that we just kind of pulled out of the text that was never really intended to be there. That's just something that we inferred centuries on. But what you've got here is you've got John. Remember we told that John is, is Jesus' closest friend and disciple. It's John the Beloved. We've got John, his closest friend and disciple, who is writing down explicit claims explicit claims by Jesus that he is equal with God the Father. That's truth number one. Jesus is equal with God. Truth number two, Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. You might read this passage. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing this passage. You might think, how in the world can you say that Jesus is equal with God the Father when he very clearly says, if you were paying attention in verse 19 and 20, he says, and I'm summarizing, but the Son can do nothing of his own accord. The son can do nothing on his own. He only does what the father tells him to do, and he only says what the father tells him to say. So how in the world can you say that Jesus is equal with God the Father? 
But don't you see, friends, this is the gospel. This is the, this is the good news that we celebrate every single week here. This is the very essence of Christianity, that Jesus is absolutely equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and yet, yet, he submits himself, he humbles himself. Jesus is high and lifted up, and yet he comes down. That's the gospel. For a, for a time, he submitted himself completely in obedience to the Father. Um, the verse that most clearly expresses this in the Bible, I think, is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, uh, there's another translation, who was in very nature God, in other words, the very essence of God, who was God himself, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, in other words, to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, but I'm sorry, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the gospel. Jesus, who was high and lifted up, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why in the world would he do that? Why would a king lay down his crown, take off those royal robes of majesty, step out of his throne room, be born in a barn to a teenager and the village carpenter, and grow up in our dirty, broken a vile-filled world, and then travel from place to place to place, teaching and healing and serving and loving a people who would utterly reject him and spit on him and mock him and punch him and, and, and drive nails through his hands and drive nails through his feet. Why would he sit in a room with 12 men the night before that, men who, men who would eventually run off in his darkest hour, sit in a room with 12 guys, one of whom would stab him in the back in just a couple of hours, and then he would get down on his hands and eat, and he would take their dirty, feces-covered, grimy feet in his hands and wash them. The God of the universe washing our feet. What would motivate him to do that? What would motivate the God of the universe to come down to this earth, humble himself, and to die for a man like me, and a man or a woman like you? What would motivate well, and then he, at the end, he would, he would say that it was a joy to do so. Not only did he endure it, he endured it for the joy that was set before him. Why would he do that? Love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was the only way. Isaiah 59 tells us that our iniquities, in other words, our sins, our, our rebellion, have separated us from God. A holy God. Actually, the word condemnation that we read over and over here in John chapter 5, that literally means separation. We are condemned. These are separated from a holy God. The God that is love and life and light. We are separated from him. And as a result of that, we are living in brokenness and darkness and death. And he's come that we might be alive. And that's been the, that's been the question of the ages. We are separated from a holy God. How can we ever be reconciled back to him? How could we ever reach up high enough to God? Um, the Russian cosmonaut, decades earlier, the first Russian cosmonaut up in space, in an interview, he, uh, he, they were asking what, what it was like, and he said, well, uh, when I was up there, I looked around, and I, I didn't see God anywhere. He was up there, and kind of poking his head around. I didn't see God anywhere in that. I was thinking that's what, like, something my five-year-old would say, right? He thinks if you get a, a plane that can go far enough or a, a ship that can go high enough, then we'll eventually reach heaven. That's the idea. You just go high enough in the sky. 
what C.S. Lewis said as a response to that statement by that cosmonaut. He said that if there is a God, it would be impossible to relate with him as someone on the first floor relates to somebody on the second floor. You just walk up the stairs, right? Or you yell up, right? He said, what rather, we relate to God the way that Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet relate to Shakespeare. We being the characters, could know a whole lot about the author of our story, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself into our story, into our play. You follow me? But we know that God did a whole lot more than just giving us information, not giving us more than just information about him in a book. The Word became flesh. That's week one of our series. The Word became flesh. God became man. God took on flesh. In his book, uh, Center Church, Tim Keller uses this illustration. I think I've used it here before, but I'm going to use it again. He says this. He says, Many fans of Dorothy Sayers' detective stories and mystery novels know that Sayers was one of the first women to attend Oxford University. And the main character in her stories, Lord Peter Whimsey, is an aristocratic sleuth and a single man. At one point in the novels, though, a new character appears, Harriet Vane. She's described as one of the first women who graduated from Oxford and as a writer of mystery novels. Eventually, she and Peter fall in love and marry. But who was she? Many believe that Sayers looked into the world she had created, fell in love with her lonely hero, and wrote herself into the story to save him. Very touching. But, not, but that is not nearly as moving or amazing or amazing as the reality of the incarnation. God, as it were, looked into the world he had made and saw our lostness and had pity on his people. And so he wrote himself into human history as its main character. The second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, came into the world as a man, Jesus Christ. Truth number one, Jesus was equal with God. Truth number two, Jesus humbled himself. Truth number three, Jesus is exalted again and stands as judge. Um, he's exalted once more, and he stands now as our judge. Verse 21 on in this passage that we looked at describes this reality. Jesus has all authority, and at some point, all will be brought before him to give an account. Um, everybody, everyone in this room, everyone throughout history uh, will we'll all be there. Moses will, will stand before God, Joshua, David, Abraham Lincoln, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Michael Jackson, uh, the Apostle Paul, John, the guy who wrote the book that we're studying today, he will stand before Jesus. He will stand before Jesus and give an account. You will stand before Jesus and give an account. Your parents, your kids will stand before Jesus and give an account. And there's something very, very important that's within this passage that we must know about that day, about the day of judgment. We must, every person in this room, it is, there is nothing more important than you to understand than for you to understand this one specific thing. Verse 28 and 29 tell us this. Jesus says this, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So do you see what that statement says? We can't just skip over that. Do you see what that What that statement says is deeds matter. The way we live our life matters. What it's seeming to say is that we will be judged. It seems to say we will be judged on the basis of our deeds. That's what it seems to say, right? Before you stand up and cry heresy, I see Joseph sitting 
I have to stand up and call out heresy. No, uh, because every single week we say the exact opposite of that, don't we? We say, the, we say nobody is good enough to get to heaven. Nobody's deeds are, are, are good enough to get you into heaven. But that's what it says. It says those who have done good will arise to the resurrection of the righteous, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So how do you, what do you do with that? Verse 24 says this. Let me read this. Verse 24 says, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So if you look at verse 24, and you look at verse 20, verse 24 says, whoever hears and believes in me. In other words, has faith, places their faith in Jesus. Whoever hears and places their faith in Jesus has eternal life. So it's based on faith. But over here in verse 29, it says it's based on deeds. Do these two verses contradict each other? And I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no, they don't. What Jesus is saying here is what the Bible says everywhere. What he's saying is that your deeds... are an index to your heart. When you open up a book and you look at the index, the index tells you what's inside the book. Your deeds are an index to your heart. Your deeds tell you what is inside your heart. We are not saved on the basis of our deeds, but whether or not we place our faith in Jesus. But if you place your faith in Jesus, your deeds will reflect that, won't it? Um. Heard it said like this, that a fruit on a tree does not produce life in that tree. That fruit on a tree does not give that tree life, but the fruit on a tree reveal whether or not, reveals whether or not that tree is alive. The fruit on a tree does not produce life for that tree, but the fruit on a tree reveals whether or not that tree is actually alive. Martin Luther famously said that faith alone saves, but faith that is alone can never save. Because the Bible says that people who are saved on judgment day are not just those who say they believe, but but those who are saved on judgment day are those who actually believe. And if you've actually placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the Holy Spirit makes his home in your heart and nothing can ever be the same. There will begin to be a change in your heart. Change will begin to happen. Now, it won't be overnight. Don't get discouraged. If you're still struggling with sin, join the... That's why we're here. Okay? We to encourage you to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Okay? It's not an overnight process. It takes time. And sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. And sometimes it's three steps forward and one step back. It's a process. There are mountains. There are valleys. It is a process. It's a journey. But there will be change. The sign of life is growth. You see that in the natural world? It's the same in the spiritual world. The sign, if you are alive, if you've been made alive in Christ, there will be growth. That's the reality. It may take time. We were just talking about this a couple nights ago. We just planted seeds in our front yard, in our backyard. And it took some time, but we're beginning to see growth. And we kept watering it, and we kept... Um, that's all we did. The sun did the rest. We kept watering it, right, and trying not to step on... I don't know if it would matter if we stepped on it or not, but we didn't let the kids on it. But we kept watering it, and we kept being patient, and we kept doing it. And eventually, just as Rod said it would, it began to grow. So how do you know if you believe? How do you know if, there is, if you have truly placed your faith in Jesus? Again, the sign of life is growth. And what are those, that fruit that will be born? Love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Now, does that mean that if you go home today and you're impatient with your kids that the Holy Spirit's not living inside of you? No. 
That's not, that's, again, we are sinners. Um, however, a, a good kind of diagnostic, ask yourself these questions everyone's talking. Am I more patient today than I was five years ago? Am I more, do, do I, is my heart more burdened today than it was? Is it, is it softer for, the, for those around me than it was five years ago? Is my love deeper? Am I more, do I have greater sorrow for my sin today than I did five years ago? I'm just going to say it one more time. You are not saved by your deeds, but you are revealed through your deeds. I think that's the principle that, that Jesus is saying here. You are not saved by your deeds, but you are revealed through your deeds. Those are our three key truths. Jesus is equal with God the Father. Second, that he humbled himself and he came down. And third, that he is exalted at the right hand of God and will one day stand as judge. So let me wrap, wrap up by pointing out just a couple of quick practical things that we can take away from this. All right, takeaway number one. The only reasonable approach to Jesus is a radical one. Our only reasonable approach to Jesus is a radical one. Say what you will about the Pharisees. Uh, at least they were reasonable about their response to, to Jesus' claims. Okay, uh, again, most people in our culture today, when they think about Jesus, they just think of him as some interesting historical figure with some good suggestions on how to live. Okay, um, at best, most just think of him as one of the great moral teachers like Siddhartha or Muhammad, but you can't group Jesus in with those guys. You can't categorize him in that way. He doesn't leave room for that. Um, you, you can take Buddha out of Buddhism. You can take Muhammad out of Islam. And and the followers of those religions will tell you that their religion will stay intact. Okay? You can't do that with Christianity. Okay? Uh, we've, we've joked about this before. You can, you can take Christ out of Christian, but all you're left with is I-A-N and Ian won't help you. Okay? It's a dumb joke, but you get the idea. Okay? Thank you, Sarah. Um, because the difference is, Jesus didn't come with some, uh, you know, some great moral example or some great moral teaching that you might be your own Savior. He came as the Savior. He didn't just come here to point to God the Father. He came uh, uh, saying, I am the way too. He didn't point us to the way that we might walk the path and labor up and then make our way to the Father. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me, is what he said. Those are his claims. you got to do something with that. So Jesus is either much, much greater than a good man or a good teacher, or he's much, much less than a good teacher or a good man. Because a good teacher or a good man does not make statements like, you must honor me and worship me to the same degree that you worship God the Father. A good man doesn't say that. A good man or a good teacher doesn't say, I alone can give you life, if I so choose. A good man or a good teacher doesn't say, I alone have the authority to judge and you will have to stand and give account to me at the, at the day of resurrection. A good man or a good teacher doesn't say that. Somebody much greater than a good man or a good teacher can say that or somebody much lower, like a lunatic or a liar, can make those kind of claims. But not a good man. Not a good, don't, don't treat him like he's, like he's a good teacher with some good suggestions. The Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was claiming to be and what he was demanding from them, and their response was they wanted to kill him. The disciples, on the other hand, knew they also knew what he was claiming and what he was demanding, and they threw everything aside and left and followed him. Those are the reasonable responses. You have to dismiss him as a blasphemer or as a madman, or you have to bow down and worship him as God. 
You cannot be moderate about your response. He leaves no room for that. So the question is, how have we responded to Jesus' claims? Are we still coming to him with some levels of apathy, or have we placed our complete, total faith in who he is and what he has done? Let me ask you this question. What would it look like for you to hear the voice of Jesus as the voice, the voice that directs and guides your steps each and every day? Not one of the many voices in your head, and you get to kind of pick and choose which one you want to follow that day. What would it look like if Jesus' voice was the voice that gave you, that affirmed you, and that led you, and that guided you and directed you each and every day? How would that change your relationships with your coworkers? How would it change your relationships with your kids and with your spouse? How would that change your, the way you spend your time and the way you spend your money? What would it look like, hear me, what would it look like to hear the words of Jesus not as suggestions from a good teacher, but as commands from a holy God? Francis Chan gave this great illustration once where he contrasted our response to the commands of Jesus with the game Simon Says. Right? We're familiar with the game Simon Says. Um, in the game Simon Says, uh, if, if Simon Says, uh, raise your right hand. Good job, Eva. Um, one. Right? Let's try to... If it, Simon says, high-five the person next to you, boom. Very good. We, so we, we get the idea. Simon says, you do it. Jesus says, you memorize it. Do you see the difference? Simon says, and you do it. Jesus says, and we memorize it. Um, it'd be like this. If, if I were to tell uh, my son this afternoon, we go home, and I walk by his room, and it's a disaster. Uh, not that it is. It's perfectly clean right now, I'm sure. When I go home and I tell Israel, I say, son, son, please go clean your room. And what if he comes back to me 15 minutes later and he says, uh, dad, hey, dad, I just want you to know, I have totally memorized exactly what you have told me to do. You said, dad, you said, son, please go clean your room. And dad, you know what? I took it a step further. I actually, mem- I actually know how to say that in Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> son, please go clean your room. You know what, dad? I've been praying about it. I've been thinking about it. I'm going to call my friends, Eli and Nathan, and they're going to come over to my house tonight, and we're going to do a study, discuss what it would look like if I were to actually clean my room. We're, we're going to have a discussion on what a clean room would look like. What would I say to my kid at that moment? I'd say, stop stalling. Go clean your room. But don't you see that's exactly what we do? Don't you see that's what we do in the Christian life? We read, we study, we discuss what it would look like to love our enemies, to make disciples, and yet so often it stops right there. What would it look like? I'm using the term. What would it look like? (laughs) What would it look like if we stopped treating the words of Jesus as merely ideas to be discussed and to explore? You see that all the... Let's explore the idea of what it means. Just do it. Let's just do it. What if we stop treating the words of Jesus as merely ideas to be discussed, but as commands to be obeyed? We call this obedience. This is what a, a core, principle, a core um, part of the DNA here at Twin Oaks is that we, we, we want to be obedience. We want to promote obedience-based discipleship. And that's in opposition to knowledge-based discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus, we think you've got to go through discipleship classes until you've got to absorb as many sermons as you possibly can. You've got to go to all the classes. You've got to get in all the groups. You've got to read all the books. That's knowledge-based discipleship. We think being a disciple means learning more, 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 more. It's acquiring more and more information. But obedience-based discipleship means you hear and you obey. 
You study and you obey. Um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, Jesus says, blessed, I'm summarizing it, but it's, he says essentially, blessed is the man who actually hears these words. He just finished preaching this, the greatest sermon ever recorded, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed is the man who hears these words and puts them into practice. He says that that, that that man will be like somebody who built his house on a rock as opposed to building his house on the sand that will be washed away when the water comes, when the storms come. Blessed is the man who actually hears these words and puts them into practice. Um, and again, this is all in, in light of uh, who he is. We, we, we respond, we, we listen and obey because of who Jesus is, who it is that's making the commands. We, we say virtually every week here, we, we talk in some way, shape, or form about the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. But you know, we usually start with the word go, make disciples. But you know, you know what he says right before he says the word go? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. Before he gives us that command, his last commission to us, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, he's saying, I am supreme. I reign as, as a supreme king. I am sovereign over all of heaven. Countless angels bow down before me and cry out, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. I am king over all of heaven and I am king over all of the earth. Therefore, go. Do you see the weight of that command? He, he gives his credentials before he gives us the commission. That's why we say over and over, his commission for us to go and to make disciples and to baptize him and teach him to obey is not a suggestion. It is a command from the highest of the highest of the highest kings. That's why we take it with such great weight here. So let me give you just a very quick, simple challenge this week. This goes for me too, for all of us. When we open our Bibles to read this week, this afternoon or tomorrow morning or the next day and the next day, when we open our Bibles to read, let's not close it and walk away until we have first, for a minute or two or three or whatever, until we have first prayed and asked God to show us how we are to apply what we have learned to our life that day. Very simple. Read your Bible and before you close it, ask God, give me the power and the insight to know how I should apply this to my life today. Okay? Um, let it change your attitude. Let it change your relationships. Let it change your choices for that day. Second takeaway is this, and we're closing here. For those who are in Christ Jesus, your judgment took place 2,000 years ago. Amen. Your judgment took place 2,000 years ago. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have said, yes, Jesus, I want to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. I want to be made new. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and make me alive. If you were in Christ Jesus, your judgment took place 2,000 years ago. Romans 8 tells us there is now, present tense, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In John 5.24, we read it a few minutes ago. Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Now notice here, it doesn't say that we will or that even that we are progressively passing from death to life. It's past tense. We have passed from death to life. It's not something that we need to strive for or maintain. He's done it. He's finished it. It's over. And I told you this is going to be a practical takeaway. 
And it doesn't, frankly, doesn't get any more practical than this. Because the reality is that most of us, including myself, we live our lives each day as if we're still standing on trial and we need to prove ourselves to God and to those around us. As if we need to gain God's approval and gain the approval of those around us. But what if you walked out of this room today with the realization, the understanding that the verdict is in? The verdict is in. The gavel has dropped. It's done. The trial is over. You are loved and you are accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. Your salvation, your, your, your peace, your security does not rest on your weak shoulders. Thank God for that, right? It rests on the righteousness and the work of Jesus Christ. We are loved and accepted by God because of Jesus. Fully and finally, we can ro- walk out of this room with complete freedom, with complete peace, with complete joy, knowing we have nothing left to prove to God or prove to those around us because we are loved and accepted completely. Martin Lloyd-Jones would often ask this question to people in his congregation. It was kind of a diagnostic. He would ask this question to people in his congregation to try to determine their spiritual understanding and their spiritual condition. And he would ask them, he said, are you now ready to call yourself a Christian? And over the years, what he, he said was that there, there was, they would, people would oftentimes respond by saying something like, well, I still don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I'm just not good enough to call myself a Christian yet. And to that, he would, he would give this response. He said, at once, I know that they are still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea still is that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it's the lie of the devil. It's a denial of the faith. You will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and I am in him. Do you believe that? The essence of the Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough and that I am in him. But for those of us who have been walking as Christians, walking with Jesus for a lot of years, isn't it still so easy to slip back into that mode of self-reliance? Isn't that so easy to do? Every single day I struggle. Every single day I, move back, I want to move back. It's just my human nature. I want to move back into this mode of self-dependence. But can I tell you that reverting back to self-dependence is nothing less than shackling your, yourself with chains. I want to close this morning by reading to you a list of comparisons between self-reliant religion and the gospel. This is a comparison between self-reliant religion and the gospel. It's a little long, but, but I hope that you will pay close attention. My hope is that upon listening to this reading that we will be reminded of how the finished work of Jesus Christ not only affects our security in the life to come, but how we live and move and breathe today. Please, please uh, read this and, and consider these uh, realities carefully. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. But the gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from God. But the gospel says I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. Religion says when I am criticized, I am furious and devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But the gospel says... When I am criticized, I struggle, but it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism. 
Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I am not living up to my standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident and I feel like a failure. But the gospel says, my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad he had to die for me, and I am so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. Religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, and so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. But the gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who is excluded for me. I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. Last one. Religion says, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral records, my personal discipline, my social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them so they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance, whatever I may say I believe about God. But the gospel says, I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, etc. But none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely have to have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they're threatened and lost. I lied. One more. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself, since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. But the gospel says, when, go- when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Amen? The person and the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do, changes everything. Not just for our life to come, but for here and now. Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Hear and believe today in Jesus Christ. That you might approach the throne of grace with confidence. That it might change your eternity, but also transform today. Amen? Let's pray.